What a great reminder that is to start off the night with a, hold up, I'm going the wrong way here. Start off the night with such a great reminder that no matter what we're walking in here with tonight, guys, God loves you so much. I'm excited to open up his word with you tonight. My name is Ryan. Don't take my word for it. We are going to see in God's very word himself that he loves us. And I'm excited to jump tonight back into the series on the Exodus that Mikey started us out with last week. So if you remember last week, Mikey showed us a riveting um, video, animated video from 1998. Uh, Was anybody here alive in 1998? My goodness. You guys are stupid young. Uh, Prince of Egypt, story of Moses. You remember that God from the burning bush appeared to Moses this unimpressive, murderous shepherd, Moses, and he gave him a very, very clear and impossible task. Go to the most powerful man in the world who has been holding my people, Israel, captive for over 400 years. Go to him, Moses, and tell him to let him go. And Moses is like, oh my goodness, there's no way that this is going to work. And so this week, guys, the action of the story picks up. Moses And Aaron return to their former home. They heed the call from their Lord and they head to Egypt and they walk right into the courts of the most powerful man on earth. And Exodus 5, 1 through 2 says that later Moses went in to Pharaoh. And this this is what they said. They said, this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. They're speaking on behalf of their God. And he says, let my people go. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness, right? They're gonna go worship. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Okay, what we just heard in that response from Pharaoh, guys, is not some innocent question from a man who is like humble to learn. He's not like, wait, the Lord? Tell me more about the Lord. I'd love to hear more about this guy. No, we just read one of the most prideful and audacious questions that you will find in this entire book. This was Pharaoh's question to Moses. And this is actually going to be kind of our big question of the night, kind of framing in where we're going. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is coming from a man who thinks of himself as a God, who doesn't see himself just like maybe the president of the United States would or maybe any other king. This king sees himself as more than human, the same level as Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord. This is coming from a man who has no intention at all, not even in the slightest, to submit his will or his life to another king. And so Pharaoh hears this request from Moses and Aaron, from the Lord, and instead of listening, instead of letting the people go, or even shrugging it off, it's almost like he's offended. And he makes things worse for his slaves. He makes things worse For the Israelites, labor is intensified. The supplies are cut short. Their hours are longer and their backs are literally breaking beneath these slave drivers. 
And so Moses, obviously taking some people's heat. Moses, why in the world did you have to go into Pharaoh? Yes, things aren't great, but we've been at this for 400 years. And now they're worse. Why couldn't you just stay quiet? So Moses goes to God again, and he's confused. And he says in Exodus 5, 23, he says, ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for his people. And you, talk about audacious. He says, you, God, haven't rescued your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. God has made his promise. He will rescue his children by his mighty hand. It's a big promise. And there's no Egyptian God or king that will stand in the way of this rescue mission. None. Let alone a Pharaoh who sees his creator as his equal. How twisted and backwards is that? the Pharaoh who has the audacity to ask, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I want to say some people tonight, some of us might actually be coming in asking this question or something very similar to it. Maybe even in humility, some of us are coming to Saul coming tonight and we don't know the God of the Bible. And that's okay if that's you tonight. You're coming in humbly saying, who is the Lord? Like, teach me. Like, I want to know about this God. I've heard a lot about him and I want to hear it from him. But I also know some people might be coming in a different light tonight. Maybe out of pride that resembles more of Pharaoh than one of a humble question asker. And you have no interest in submitting to the Lord tonight at all. Either way, whether you're coming tonight in humility or in pride, this is what's true. This is what's true about tonight, that in his word, we will be confronted with the Lord. That in his words, we are going to be confronted. We are going to come face to face with the living God. And the only question is, how will we respond? That's the question on the table for us in each and every one of our seats or on this stage. How will we respond with humble worship or with hardened hearts? Who is the Lord that I shall obey him? That is the question tonight. The question that God is now ready to answer after 400 years of slavery. God is about to show Egypt exactly who he is. And one of the greatest acts of judgment that has ever happened on this earth. This is Exodus 7 through 11. Going to do a flyover of God's plagues and judgment on the people who have been oppressing and enslaving his children for all these years. Each plague you'll see kind of ramping up in intensity, right? Like some of them are kind of random and weird. You might be kind of confused like, why God thought of that. But what we know is that God is showing dominion over all of these gods of Egypt. All these false gods that people are worshiping, the one God, the one God of Israel, the one true God is putting his foot down and saying, I am the Lord. And after refusing God's command to let his people go, God's first sign of judgment is this. The first plague is the Nile turned into blood. The Nile River turned into blood after warning and warning that judgment is coming. Moses and Aaron finally go out, hold their staff over the water, 
and all of the water sources in Egypt turn to blood. Okay, ew. Yep, we, okay, so we can say that. We can think, that's just disgusting, let's move on. Or we can think, hmm, hyperbolically, this is so symbolic. We can think these things all day, but this is what's actually true, guys. It says in chapter seven that the water literally turned into blood. And it smelled. It smelled so bad that people would not even approach it to drink. It was completely undrinkable. And it says that for seven days, there was no water available. And it says that the Egyptians, out of desperation, started digging holes, like searching for water anywhere that they could find it. I mean, just imagine. Imagine in your thirst as an Egyptian citizen, knowing everything that's happened in the past, looking at this river, being terrified out of your mind as to what judgment is coming upon you and your people for what you've been doing. And you remember, (laughs) you remember 80, almost 90 years ago, all of the babies that were commanded to be thrown into that river to be killed. You remember the stories of all of those Israelite babies that were thrown and killed in this river and how fitting this judgment must seem to them. And so you would hope, you would hope that your king, your Pharaoh would see what you see. He would understand, but as the story goes on, he doesn't. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see this plague has absolutely no effect on Pharaoh. He brings in magicians and they pull the same kind of witchcraft. They're like, look, we can do it too. Pharaoh doesn't care. They move on. And the second plague, the second plague, an invasion of frogs. I told you it gets a little weird. An invasion of frogs is what God's power does next. And you say, I kind of like frogs. I know, Summer, you even have a pet frog. Like, these things aren't that bad, are they? (laughs) Well, not like this, you don't like frogs. I think, I thought I liked mice until one night in college, I had a mouse wake me up literally on my chest. Right? Bare chest just staring at me. And I I just yelled, nope! threw it off me and was like, I'm done with mice forever. Okay, frogs were animals that they kept sacred. Okay, these were uh, important to them after their goddess Hecate, right? Like this is something they would revere that is now a sign of death, a sign of judgment as corpses of these frogs were being shoveled out of your house, smelling maybe even worse than the river of blood did. Would Pharaoh care now? Well, guess what? He does care now. This actually does get his attention. He even asks Moses to pray for him. He's coming around like the light at the end of the tunnel. This is going to be good. He asks Moses to pray and get rid of the frogs because his magicians can't get rid of them. Like they can summon a couple frogs, but they can't get rid of them. There's too many. So Moses prays to remove these frogs and God removes the frogs and things go back to normal. And what would seem like a breath after normal, the inevitable happens to no surprise and Pharaoh decides he isn't actually gonna change. He isn't feeling it anymore. He changes his mind back and maybe he said he was gonna let the Israelites go because of all this stuff going on, all these plagues starting to build up, but he doesn't. And he doesn't let God's people go. And so the third plague that we move into is that we see the whole entire land covered in gnats. Gnats. 
G-N-A-T-S, gnats. As the land is covered in almost a cloud of these like microscopic bugs, even Pharaoh's magicians who have been trying to emulate all these plagues so far, they just tap out, man. They're like, we're done with this. We cannot do this. They even see power like this. And they say in Exodus 8, 19 to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognize the Lord and they want nothing to do with this measuring up to God anymore. But unfortunately, their warnings fell on the deaf ears of their king. And we go on to another plague, a swarm of flies. If the gnats weren't bad enough, flies are a little bit bigger than gnats, which sounds worse. And again, Egypt is groaning in annoyance, right? That only flies could bring out of humans. And again, Pharaoh promises to let Israel go. It's like, this one's finally gonna get through to the guy. As long as God removes the flies. And so almost with this rhythmic hypocrisy, he changes his mind and makes no changes. Next is the death of livestock, the fifth plague. The death of the livestock as Egypt's livestock die one cow at a time. I want you to stop and think how badly would this impact their society? How many people's livelihoods are ruined? Like guys, we live in Iowa. Bunch of you guys come from farming communities and you understand this is not some cute thing. If all of your livestock get sick and die, that drastically affects you. And we know what that means for America too, because America runs on Iowa. Amen? And it was going to ruin their economy. Imagine the collapse. Imagine the livelihoods. Imagine the anger that Pharaoh must be feeling as all of this is happening. And yet he sits there seemingly unfazed unhindered and unwilling to change his mind to let these people go. Next, the plague doesn't just go to things out there and to the animals. It gets up close and personal. And maybe the grossest one yet, boils. Boils all over every single person in Egypt. Where if a dead cow affects your livelihood, how would raging, hot, and itchy boils affect your mood, huh? Isis, the goddess of peace and medicine that they worship, had absolutely no answer for the God of the universe here. There was no healing coming unless it was through God himself. The Egyptians are afflicted, they're miserable, and there's nobody left standing. In the courts where Moses and Aaron are approaching, they approach again and something's different. There's no magicians, there's no court. They're all miserable. They're out of there. They want nothing to do with this. But there sits Pharaoh with his hardened heart on his throne, watching his people suffer and doing absolutely nothing when his instruction could not be more clear. And if things weren't dark yet... <laughs> This one actually kind of moved me and messed with me a little bit because next, plague number seven is hail and lightning coming down from the sky. A lot of hail and lightning. In my opinion, the most terrifying plague yet 
It even came with a bit of an extra warning. Like, I don't know how, but some of the Egyptians heard Moses' warning. Like he heard like, hey, there's hail coming. You got to get inside. Get your families, get your livestock that is left. Get them all under a roof, please. Pharaoh, what are you doing? And some of the people actually heard that and heeded his warning. And they got inside. They took their family inside, but not all of them. And as they're sitting there in their houses or in their shelters, as a crazy, crazy storm is coming through, they're watching as rocks are falling from the sky and killing the people they know. As they're trying to get indoors, hailstone after hailstone after hailstone cripples them and kills them. With this much blood, you think Pharaoh would give in And honestly, in 927 here of Exodus, it would appear that he actually does finally, that this was the last straw. He says these words, the Lord, using the personal name of God, the Lord is the righteous one. The Lord is the righteous one and I and my people are the guilty ones. Wow. With a dose of humility, we have not heard from this king yet. The Lord is the righteous one. I am guilty. My people are guilty. But as you can guess, his repentance is short-lived. His heart is evil. And the Israelites are going nowhere. Next, locusts come. The crops are devoured. And yet again, Pharaoh begs for mercy. And yet again, Moses intercedes for his enemy, prays all to the same result of uh, Israel's continued slavery. Ninth, darkness, where the sun god, Ra, maybe you've heard of that one. He'd be shut out for three days as darkness fell over Egypt in pure terror. I want you guys to just sit in this one for a second and just imagine how terrifying the horrors of palpable darkness that you could feel as the night just never seems to end where all you hear in the streets is children crying in fear, where all you hear is adults crying out to a God that will never answer them. Again, Pharaoh begs, he bargains, he pleads, and of course, never actually wants to submit to the Lord. And this would be the final straw before the Lord hits Pharaoh where it hurts the most as he pledges to strike down every firstborn male in Egypt as the dead babies of Israel's past cry out from the graves. The Lord's judgment has arrived. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The first answer we have to that question tonight, guys, is the Lord is fiercely loyal to his own. Who is the Lord that I shall obey him? Well, he is fiercely loyal to his own. And I know what a lot of you guys are thinking. A lot of you guys were especially new to the Bible. And maybe this is even your first night and you're saying, well, check it off. This is exactly what I expected to get when I came here. This is exactly why I don't want to know this Lord. (laughs) This is exactly why. Like, let alone obey him. How could a loving and kind God have so much fury and so much wrath? That's a great question. 
It's a great question. How could a loving God and a kind God have so much fury and wrath? But I want to gently push back, guys. I want to gently push back on that question and say this. You actually wouldn't have it any other way. You would not have it any other way. And I want you to think about this. If you were with a father and his daughter, not enough of us are fathers or mothers, but let's just imagine we're, we're with a father and his young daughter and some bad guy comes up and snatches her right out of his hand, starts taking off. Classic bad guy move. What do you think that father would do? Well, in my opinion, it depends on if he's a good father or not, right? Like a bad father is like, ah, oh, shoot, man. That guy's fast, you know? <laughs> guy's fast. Uh, sorry. Uh, no, imagine, imagine the father starts running after this thief to protect his daughter from who knows what terrors would come. And you step in because you know best, and you stop him. You stand right in his way. You say, stop, no, no. This is not loving. Why are you so angry? <laughs> you cannot be loving and angry at the same time. What would that father do to you? Well, he would scream back and he would say no, and he would knock you on your butt, run you over, and go rescue his little girl. Literally think that's the plot of Taken, but you get the idea. Sometimes love, guys, in the face of evil looks like fierce loyalty and a strong hand. And I think so far, guys, we could be seeing this whole scene of plagues and the confrontation of Pharaoh. I think we could be seeing it from two different perspectives. The first pers perspective, tough word to say tonight, is that of Israel. I just want to ask, do any of you guys feel completely captive to your sin tonight? Like Israel, who is completely given up. Well, you have to imagine, after 400 years of not being rescued, you think they would give up. Do any of you guys feel like that tonight? Where the addictions are actually not really getting any better? And for every one step you take forward towards Jesus, it feels like you're just taking two steps back. What we could see so far for you for anybody here who's feeling that way, is unmistakably, the Lord is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. He is powerful and he is fiercely loyal to his own. And there is no addiction that you are falling back into and no sin that he cannot break the chains of for you. I know a lot of us feel that way tonight. But the other perspective you could be taking so far is that of Pharaoh. You're confused maybe tonight because you've actually never been told that God actually cares about sin. That God's judgment on sin is actually real. You've never heard that in your entire life. You've always been told to do whatever you want. As long as you're not hurting anybody, that's fine. But then you look at this God and you read his words to us and you see that he takes sin very, very seriously. And judgment actually will happen. And I'm telling you, tonight is a great night to repent. That's a churchy word to say, turn away 
from your sin and turn and run towards God. Submit to the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he is fiercely loyal to his own, but that's not all, guys. That's not all. We need to zoom in one more time and see one more thing. One more thing that will complete our answer of who this guy is and what's going on here. So I'm gonna read 11 verses rapid fire, okay? It's kind of a game. I want you to see if you can pick up a theme with what I'm reading here. Then I'll tell you why we needed to zoom in and see the full picture, okay? So here we go. Chapter seven, verse 13 says this. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. 7.23, Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace and didn't uh, take even this to heart. 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8.19, this is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. 9-7, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not let the people go. 9-12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord told Moses. 9-34, when Pharaoh saw the rain, hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. 10-20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the Israelites go. And in 10-27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was unwilling to let them go. And then finally in 11.10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let Israel go out of his land. Okay, pretty easy to pick up on the theme there, huh? 11 verses of Pharaoh hardening his own heart toward the authority of the Lord or having the Lord just finally give him what he wants as he let his heart grow colder and colder and colder. Okay, this is why I think we needed to read those verses. First, this is actually a really, really good picture of what it looks like to be a slave to our sin. Sin is like morphine that numbs us one drip at a time where we think it's not a big deal. We talk about grace all the time. I'm fine. It's all good. Nobody can see. It's not as big as some other sins, right? Drip, drip, drip. Goes the morphine of sin. Colder and harder. Our hearts grow. Like Pharaoh's heart was growing colder with every decision to sin. The other reason we read those verses is because this is actually, guys, what the patience of God looks like. Yes, it is an amazing story of sin, but this is an amazing story of the God of the universe offering his hand in mercy over and over and over again. God's display of loving forgiveness before he eventually just gives the sinner what they really want. You guys, before every single plague, there was an opportunity for repentance. Like Romans 2, 4 says, do you despise the riches of his kindness, 
It almost feels like this is directed right at Pharaoh. But honestly, when I look in the mirror, it feels like this is directed right at me at times. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Don't you just want to squeeze Pharaoh from our seats and just scream, dude, repent. This is annoying. It's a hard sermon to listen to. I blame Pharaoh for that, not me. How patient does the Lord have to be to put up with this? But honestly, how often does my life look so much like this ice cold Pharaoh? This great act of judgment on sin when you look a little closer, is actually loaded to the brim and overflowing with grace and mercy. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The last point is that the Lord is lovingly patient even to his enemies. The Lord is lovingly patient even to his enemies. I'm telling you, there's nothing more eye-opening or life-changing than this to see someone love and forgive, but not just someone who loves and forgives them, but loves and forgives their enemy, no matter the cost to them. It's truly moving. You can look for it all over. It's all over the place in movies and everyday life. Like I got a new roommate recently and we were so excited, but there's one big problem. He's not a cat guy. And he hated my cat. And I think my cat knew that and hated him back. It was like you could cut the tension with a knife. Every night, my roommate would kick his feet up on the ottoman, and the cat would just go bite his feet, <laughs> teach him a lesson. And I'm like praying for him. I'm like, God, I don't know what's going to happen here. But I can't live with this tension any longer. And I went upstairs the other day after praying for them. <laughs> and it was quiet. And I thought, oh, man. I think my roommate's napping on the couch, and he was. But much to my joy and surprise, sitting right there was my cat on his chest. <laughs> it's moving stuff to watch an enemy love another enemy. <laughs> but man, there's nothing more life-changing, patient, loving, or forgiving than this God towards his enemies, amen. Who are his enemies? Well, Pharaoh, <laughs> the ones who openly oppose him. But I'm telling you, it's actually me. It's actually you. Ephesians 2, 3 says that all of us were, before we knew Jesus, by nature, we were children of wrath. That's talking about me and that's talking about you. Our sin has led our hearts to be so hard. Our sin has led us to a place of absolutely no hope. No hope that is outside of the stone melting blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Who hung there. Who hung there on that tree with my sin and my failures and your sin and your failures all on his mind. And he cried out with sincerity pure truth in his voice, pleading to his father, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because Pharaoh hardened his heart 10 times over in this story. 
I think a lot of us, we're being honest, we feel like we've actually done that a lot more than 10 times over, huh? But I'm telling you tonight, for you, the Lord's loving patience has brought you here tonight to a place of opportunity to turn away from your sin for the first time or to turn away from your sin again. To be free from your bondage again. And as sure as the Lord lives, as sure as Jesus Christ raised from the dead three days later, as sure as he reigns and sits on his throne, he promises that he will deliver. And so our goal, our application as we go from here is very, very simple, guys. As we turn from our sin and look to the cross where we find that loving patience to enemies like me and we find forgiveness, our application is let's just not be a Pharaoh. Don't be a Pharaoh. How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna see this example and run as far away in the other direction as we can? We'll just hear this that of every single sin, every single decision we make that is leading to sin is like a drop of morphine numbing and callousing our hearts away from the Lord, then this is also true that every moment is a great moment to choose obedience. Every single moment is a great moment to choose obedience. What is that gonna look like for you? What is that gonna look like for me? You're gonna go here tonight and you're gonna hit your head on the pillow and you're gonna have your phone right there and you can do whatever the heck you want because nobody's watching and you got the world at your fingertips. What are you gonna do? The sins of lust, comparison, envy are just ruining us as we lay in our bed at night. And I'm telling you, tonight, Let's win tonight. We're gonna choose to be obedient because every moment is a great moment to choose obedience. What about the next time you're in a really fun conversation? You got the best joke in the world right around the corner, but you know it's gonna destroy that other person. You know what that's called? It's called gossip. You know that you can make yourself look and sound and be better than the person who's not in the room with you and you have an opportunity right that moment to actually do it and take the reward and the laughs that comes with it, or you can hold your tongue and realize that every moment is a great moment to choose obedience. Tomorrow morning, I'll tell you exactly what mine's gonna be. I'm gonna be tired from all of this, staying up late with all you crazy college students. I'm gonna look over at the coffee table and I'm gonna look at this and I'm gonna say, no way, no way. We had enough Bible last night. I don't wanna listen to the Lord today. I don't wanna read that. And I'm going to regret saying this because I'm going to look at my Bible and I'm going to remember that every moment is a great moment to choose obedience. Running towards freedom, one step at a time, guys. That's what obedience is. Running towards joy, running towards freedom, running towards Jesus. And so who is the Lord that I should obey him? That is our question. And our answer tonight is that he is fiercely loyal to those he loves and he is lovingly patient even to his enemies. So the only question left that we have, the only question left that I have for you as we go and be salt and light in this world is will you harden your hearts tonight or will you worship your Lord? Let me pray for us and let's continue to sing.
God, we come here tonight with an impossible task, just like you gave Moses. An impossible task where freedom is the end goal. But instead of Israelites leaving a foreign land, God, we're just a bunch of desperate people who can't seem to run away from our sin fast enough. We can't make our hearts soft. We can't seem to love you like we ought to. And we know that, Lord, but we're here again offering you up these cold, hard hearts. We're saying, Lord, I'm gonna take you up on your word here. Would you replace this? As you promised in Ezekiel 36, when you say, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Lord Jesus, by the blood that you shed on the cross and the victory you have from walking out of the grave, would you make that true of Saul Company tonight? Would we be a place that hates our sin but loves Jesus like crazy? Who love to pursue obedience as countercultural as it is to submit to the good Father who loves us? Oh, this place just reflect that joy, Lord. Would my life reflect that freedom? And would you lead your people into that freedom right now? In your name.